I just want to do God's will. The kind of revolution that the world needs is a Christian revolution. If you want a miracle, you've got to expect it to happen. You are the recipients of God's grace and God's blessings, and you rejoice in that reality. Welcome to Life Today Live. Good to have you here. Uh, we're going to hit a topic that I, I don't want you to be intimidated by this because, uh, you know, you hear the terms woke in our culture. Uh, you hear like CRT, which stands for critical race theory. Uh, and maybe you've, you've studied some of the other critical theories or, or at least heard something about it. And, and, you know, as a Christian, you think, yeah, I mean, that's probably not for me and probably won't affect me. But the reality is it's affecting everything. And it's not just political. This is social. This is educational. This is uh, affecting the church. And so you need a little bit of a, a primer, uh, I, I think, to, to get a handle on what we're up against. If you're going to stand for truth, well, you need to know what the truth is, but you also need to be able to spot the counterfeit, which is a lot of what's going on out there. And so to, to help you get into this today, I have a couple of gentlemen who know a lot more about this than uh, most of us do, definitely more than me. And they have just published a book called Critical Dilemma. Uh, and so we're going to dive into this. Neil Shenvey is one of the authors. He's a writer. He's got uh, studies in chemistry, a Ph.D. in theoretical uh, chemistry. Pat Sawyer is a professor uh, up in uh, North Carolina. He's got a B.A. in psychology, M.A. in communications, and a Ph.D. in educational studies. And so these are gentlemen who are in the, the arena from which a lot of this is coming, which is impacting uh, you and I on a daily basis. So appreciate you guys being here. Uh, good to see you guys who are live. If you have any questions and you're watching us live, feel free. The chat is open on the chat enabled channels, which is Facebook and YouTube, and I think Twitter pops in there. Twitch does as well. Uh, but uh, this is a this is an important thing, and so take the time to listen, uh, chew on this, uh, and I think you'll see uh, a little bit of what we're up against, uh, which will enable you to again, stand for truth better and more effectively. Uh, Neil and uh, Pat, great to have you guys both on Life Today Live. Thank you, Randy. Great to be here. Thank you. All right, who wants to kick this off and just explain to the average person what the heck is critical theory? Uh, you know, I hear these terms. Uh, what, what does it even mean? Well, critical theory is a, an approach and a method of social analysis that prioritizes power. It's interested in terms of how power is manifested in society. When we think of critical theory, often we think of historic critical theory, capital C, capital T, which originates in the Frankfurt School, a school of social science, an institute in Frankfurt, Germany in the 20s and 30s. And critical theory is an extension and an amendment to Marxism. And Critical theory's interest in power is trying to understand who is outside of power and those that are outside of power. Or critical theory offers a way for emancipation for those who are disenfranchised and marginalized. Critical theory was a pushback against traditional theory. Traditional theory is concerned about describing the world as it is. And Randy, critical theory wants to go further than that. Critical theory not only wants to to describe the world as it is, but also prescribe a, a path forward for the world that offers power and empowerment 
to those who've been left out of the status quo. And critical social theory today is an umbrella term that encompasses a number of critical theories like critical race theory, critical pedagogy, queer theory, feminist theory. And each of those knowledge areas are concerned about how power is manifested relative to those uh, concerns within those knowledge areas. And critical social theory is essentially an extension and amendment to historic critical theory. So when we're talking about critical race theory, then race is brought into the uh, forefront. When we're talking about queer theory, sexuality and gender is brought into the forefront. And these theories are interested in making sure that those who have been experiencing racism, critical race theory, that they now are empowered and brought into power. The gay community, the LGBTQIA plus community is framed in queer theory as those who are outside of power and need to be brought into power. And so it's important for our listeners to just recognize that critical social theory is trying to understand cultural capital and societal power as that is manifested with various groups in society, and particularly those who've been left out of power, critical social theory, based upon its own internal pre-commitments in terms of what it's determining is oppression and who's left out of power. They're trying to emancipate those groups and bring them into to power so, and the status quo in society. You, you, you mentioned critical race theory, racism. You mentioned emancipation. You mentioned bringing into power. When you look at our country, where you know most Africans were uh, African Americans, large number of them at least, are the descendants of slaves who had no power. Slavery was awful, evil, wrong. Uh, it sounds like critical race theory would be a wonderful thing to emancipate uh, African Americans, bring them into a proper role of uh, you know equality and power in the country, what what could possibly uh, be wrong with that? Well, it sounds good, right? When you say, well, critical race theory is just trying to understand racism and combat it, mm -hmm. leave it there. You're like, oh, well, who doesn't, who doesn't want that? It's great. But if you look at the literature, critical race theorists want much more and they believe much more than that. So there are sort of four big ideas behind critical race theory. You'll see them enumerated over and over again in the literature. The four ideas that undergird all of critical race theory's uh, thinking and activism are number one, that racism is normal, permanent, and pervasive, meaning racism is everywhere, it's ubiquitous, it impacts everyone's daily life all the time. Now, when you hear that, and it's stated all, all the time by critical race theorists, people hear that, they say, wait a minute, I get that racism exists, certainly today, that is out there. And I understand that historically, racism was even much worse than it is today. Yeah. But how can you say it's permanent, pervasive, ubiquitous, it's normal. Because I look around, and I, I see, yes, there are racists out there, but they're marginal, like they're not very common, and people generally try to treat everyone fairly. Well, how do they espouse that then? The second idea of critical race theory is that racism is hidden beneath ideas like colorblindness, meritocracy, equality, and objectivity. So to the critical race theorists, these notions of colorblindness and meritocracy and objectivity are actually ways to conceal practices which produce this racial status quo. They think society is divided into whites at the top and people of color at the bottom. 
but they maintain that power structure by through mechanisms like colorblindness. You say, well, I don't, I don't care about color. I don't try. I start to see color, but it's actually according to critical race theory, a mechanism for racism, mechanism to preserve that power imbalance. And the third idea is that lived experience that we can only truly understand racism. It's best understood through the lived experience of people of color. Therefore, people of color, whether black or Hispanic or Asian, have special insight into racism that, that whites don't have. And finally, critical race theory holds that racism is one of many interlocking systems of oppression, along with sexism, heterosexism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, classism, and a host of other oppressions. And from the very outset, in the 1980s and 90s, critical race theorists said, we must tear down all social hierarchies whether they're based on race, class, gender, sexuality, whatever, and they all must be dismantled simultaneously. So right there, that's important because Christians will say, well, we're just going to take the ideas of critical race theory and apply them only to race, not bring in all this weird sexual gender stuff from queer theory. But critical race theory will say, no, you have to treat all these oppressions as simultaneous and interlocking and dismantle them all at the same time. So what, what's interesting, uh, one of the tenets of, critical race theory, at least the way I've read it, the professor that was one of the founders of this university, one of them in Florida, now I think he's at Texas A&M, actually. Uh, but I think most critical race theorists will agree with the idea that uh, race itself is a social construct. It's not scientific, uh, and it's it's certainly not biblical. It's actually anti-biblical. Uh, and, you know, roots in what was made popular by Darwin, the idea that we evolved differently as different races. So when I look at that, I go, okay, it's not just the, the application of, okay, how do we bring about equality? How do we get rid of injustice? How, how do we get rid of racism? To me, it's, it's like your underlying philosophy about humanity, who we are, how we got here, uh, and which gets to theology, um, is, is faulty. Like I, I reject the whole idea of race. Uh, are we dealing with maybe a solution that's built on a faulty premise in a lot of cases? Well, critical race theory would say that race is a social construct and would be correct about that. Critical race theory. Yeah, yeah. And certainly biblically, we understand there's one race, the human race, now, critical race theory, though, will emphasize that even though race is a social construct, race has had certain punitive effects in society relative to certain groups. And critical race theory is also correct about that. However, the emphasis that critical race theory places on ethnicity and ethnic identity begins to run counter to a Christian approach to how we should think about identity where our identity is rooted in Christ and that transcends and that uh, ethnicity and gender and, and mm -hmm. so forth. And, you know, critical race theory's solutions in terms of how to combat racism. And again, critical race theory is leaning on racism being embedded in institutions and social systems, not so much in terms of individuals and a sinful nature, Critical race theory is not as concerned about that. Obviously, it does not want individual racism to be taking place. But critical race theory's approach to racism is that racism is embedded in our societal systems, in our institutions, in our norms, in certain customs that 
or uh, that run across society. And while there is certainly some truth to that historically with slavery and Jim Crow, absolutely. Now de jure racism, racism being codified into law is largely absent in the United States. And so critical race theory has done kind of a rhetorical move. It's, it, it's looking not at racism from the standpoint of hardcore white supremacy and white nationalist groups. What we've done is we've expanded racism and critical race theory uh, to account for uh, racism connected to hegemonic or dominant norms in society versus overt tyranny or oppression. Mm -hmm. And since it has done that rhetorical move, now it's got a whole campaign in terms of what the solutions might be. Yeah. But, but we would say as believers that that's, that's, a, that's a decent leap. We don't deny that there's de facto racism still in institutions on some level. But critical race theory's approach is an overreach, and therefore the solutions are incorrect because yeah. its analysis ultimately is incorrect hmm. when it comes to the assessment of how racism is in society today. So is, is this is this how we get to the place where everybody's a racist, everybody's a homophobe, everybody's this, everybody, I mean, it's, you, you math is racist, some would contend, you know, and, and, and it, it almost seems absurd, and I think it's why a lot of Christians especially just dismiss it out of hand, so, but what, what, you mentioned norms, what do you what what are being targeted by those pushing and adhering to to not just critical race theory but all the critical theories um, that we should be concerned about that would be healthy norms? Right. So critical theory broadly, including critical race theory, queer theory, critical pedagogy, is very concerned with hegemonic power, which means the power of the dominant group, whether it's whites or men or heterosexuals to impose their values and norms on culture in a way that seems objective, natural, neutral. So we, we come to drink in these norms and values with the air we breathe or, or the water we drink, and they seem totally normal to us. We don't even realize they're there. So they would say we have to undermine those norms and recognize they're just ways for straight white males to impose their power on us to justify their oppression. Well. And to some extent, of course, there there can be unjust norms. There can be expectations and and values that are actually unbiblical that we should dismantle. So, for example, in during Jim Crow, you know, one of the social norms was you know black men couldn't look white men in the eyes. Yeah, like, right. Keep your head down. That's terrible. Yeah. That's wrong and unjust. But they would take that and then say, well, in some sense, all of these norms are suffused with white supremacy. So, example. In the Smithsonian Institute, they had an infographic in 2020 called The Aspects and Assumptions of Whiteness and White Culture. They listed things like objective, rational, linear thinking as elements of whiteness. That's crazy. <laughs> like, that sounds, that's like a neo-Nazi slogan. And this is the Smithsonian saying, yeah, this, these norms are all somehow suffused with whiteness and white power. Or another example, and so we would say as Christians, reason and and rational thinking is not an element of a white culture it's an element of our shared humanity and that's right. so right. it's so demeaning another example would be that you know queer theory would say that the gender binary this norm of you have men and women male and female that that's just a straight white male construct would oppress people that are gender non-conforming whereas christians have to say no the gender binary is god's design it's his value it's mm -hmm. his norm 
And, and sure, we might endorse that as a culture, but that's actually a good thing. We should endorse the gender binary because it reflects God's created order. So broadly speaking, they would challenge all kinds of things like, again, math, uh, literature, expectations of uh, politeness, courtesy, uh, timeliness, cleanliness, all of those norms are somehow suffused with oppression. And we'd have to step back and say, well, sometimes norms can be unbiblical and unjust, but other times they're reflecting God's reality and God's standards. So how do, how's this impacting the church, either one of you? Well, one of the things that brought me into this concern, Randy, relative to how, how critical social theory is impacting the church is that I began to see in evangelical churches that I had some connection to, I began to see my brothers and sisters of, of color began to prioritize their ethnic identity mm -hmm. in a way that functionally it was becoming the biggest thing to them. Theoretically, they were still saying, well, of course, my highest identity is in Christ, but functionally being lived out in time and space on the ground in the context of the church, that ethnic identity was really uh, becoming pronounced in how uh, they began to comport their Christian life. And then I began to see ministries that historically have been connected to evangelicalism start to shift in their approach and into the types of ministry that they were doing and a shift that now started to emphasize temporal liberation and liberation connected to the physical life now. And we know that, that Christ has says, what does a prophet a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And while justice concerns are certainly downstream from the gospel, I begin to see and Neil and I began to see certain ministries start to morph their approach to and their emphasis to now justice concerns or their their entire emphasis. Now we recognize that you might have a ministry out there that's helping push back against abortion, for instance, and that's a, a, a right justice concern. But we begin to see these justice issues to become almost the sum total of how these ministries were living and, and the people associated with them. We're living out their Christian lives. And we've, we found that to be alarming as that was also connected to embracing kind of an oppressed oppressor binary mm. and then seeing their ethnic lives lived out in the context of that rubric. And that was tremendously concerning so, as well. And Neil probably has. Well, yeah, well and let, me, let me ask you a specific question, because here at Life Outreach International, we uh, have uh, an outreach to reach, rescue, and restore those who are, uh, I would call, enslaved in sex trafficking. Uh, and yeah, we right. support organizations here in the United States, but we do a lot of things overseas. Uh, and, and, and it's three-pronged, the reach, rescue, and restore. You know, we, we do education reach so they don't ever get, you know, sucked into it, uh, duped into it. Rescue to get those who are in sex trafficking out. And then the restore, which is educational training, a safe place to stay, things like that. And at the core of all that for us is the gospel. Mm -hmm. How do we mm -hmm. balance that? Because, you know, I think we are called to do such things, but yes. we don't want to fall into what you're talking about, which is uh, what would the danger be there? Well, the, the spiritual being left aside. Okay. In your mind, the spiritual is at still the highest, most important thing. Mm -hmm. Our concern is when that gets displaced and it becomes not 
the most important thing, or it becomes even regulated to now almost this universalism starts to take hold of yeah. the, the epistemological standpoint of, mm -hmm. of those professing believers of those organizations. But Neil, let me let you speak to that. I was going to say, Randy, like imagine that you have a church now that's very invested in your in your sex trafficking ministry. It's great. But imagine you come in on Sunday and the sermon's about sex trafficking. Next week, same thing. It's about sex trafficking and justice. <laughs> same thing. And you're like, well, where's the Bible? Where's the text? Where, where you know, where's the, yeah. where's the Lord's Supper? So, and also if you start as a ministry to say, well, we're going to partner with this secular or even pagan or Satanist organizations, <laughs> also anti-sex trafficking. And there are brothers and sisters in arms because they're doing this too. And we're like, well, you can have co-belligerency, but at some level, I have to say there's a difference between a Christian organization that is doing this as an overflow of the gospel and say a non-Christian organization that are doing it too, but have a fundamentally different understanding of sin and human nature and salvation. So when you begin, when that, when your identity becomes more in justice than it is in the gospel, it often affects how you view other people and other organizations, where there's got to be unity in the gospel first and not in these other issues. Um, can, can I give you another example? It's sure. interesting that mm -hmm. you point that out because we have another outreach right now where we have been uh, partnering with secular governments, European governments mm. primarily, because they were providing food for our food outreach, uh, emergency food relief, and we were doing distribution, preparation, training, and things like that. And, and that was fine. We're like, yeah, you want to you wanna help us sure. out? That's great. But what happened is it turned, and they started saying, okay, uh, since you're getting food from us, you really can't do all that Jesus mm -hmm. stuff, right? <laughs> right? And it's like, okay, uh, and, and and what you're saying, well, our our danger would be because we, you know, you reach a fork in the road where you're like, okay, are we going to soften our message of the gospel to keep feeding people who are starving to death? That's a hard choice. Mm -hmm. I tell you where we landed, which is we're not sacrificing the gospel at, at anything God will provide. Uh, but is is that kind of how it creeps in, you think, in a lot of situations? It can, but usually the fact they're even asking that question is a good sign that you're asking, <laughs> well, what are we going to say? Right. You're seeing it as a sacrifice, whereas like, people begin to say it as, hey, who even cares? Mm. <laughs> what matters is hungry bellies being filled. And again, I'm not saying that's wrong. It's good to fill hungry bellies. Right. but. Like, like Pat said, the Bible is full of warnings that what matters in the end is eternal eternity. And so you can't sacrifice eternity on the altar of the present. Another, I was going to say another avenue for this, the creep into the church would be something called standpoint epistemology, where what you know and have access to in terms of truth is shaped, almost controlled by who you are in terms of being a man or woman or black or white or Hispanic or the, all those are poor or rich or educated or not that you can you almost can't see reality properly if you're a straight white male and that yeah. you can see reality properly if you are a you're poor or you're a person of color or you're a woman so in the church we're, we're reading to see when you come to the bible people say things like well you know as a white male this verse means this to me but i can't really know for sure and i really have to get input from say a woman to tell me what the verse really means because i'm blinded by my male privilege and we'd say on the one hand on the one hand of course all of us should ask for different perspectives and say i need to test all these different interpretations and figure out which one is actually in the text what i can't do is say hey it's whoever has the most intersectionality points they can tell me what the text says <laughs> yeah. that's really dangerous because yeah. they can be wrong just like you can mm -hmm. so nobody gets to play the trump card and say well my interpretation is correct because i'm a straight white male nope 
and neither can you play the card that says I'm my interpretation is correct because I am a black lesbian. Like no one gets to pull that card. Everyone has to ask, what does the Bible teach objectively, and how do we interpret it through? You know, how do we get to Paul's or Luke's intended meaning? You're so right, so true, and okay. Um, I'm watching the clock here, and I don't. If you if you're watching and and you're still struggling with some of these concepts, you go pick up Critical Dilemma. It'll it'll walk you through it. It's a it's a comprehensive book, uh, and and you will really see how this applies to you and I today. Um, I I guess sort of where I'd like to sort of end this from both of you guys is as believers, um, how do we how do we com- combat this? ideology even if we don't always know how to spot it or how to argue because you know it gets academic real quick on us normal people and we get lost in terms of course they just totally have twisted the english language and now things don't even mean what they mean uh and it gets it gets messy real fast and i think that disarms a lot of people how do we how do we combat this uh and can the average person do something about it I think the first thing to start with is, unfortunately, doing the hard work of understanding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we wrote the book because we, there's no shortcut. I mean, some Christians are like, well, it's all just Marxism. Let's write it off as Marxism. Yeah. Ironically, uh, there, there are historical reasons why that's an insufficient answer. But more than that, you, you won't appreciate all the places it shows up until you really understand it. So we're trying. that's why we wrote the book again. We try, we're trying to give Christians a a comprehensive and scholarly, but also accessible account of these theories so they can combat them effectively. We're trying to equip you to recognize these ideas and to reject them biblically. Uh, But I would say that for the average Christian who just, what am I looking for? Just stay centered on the gospel and on the Bible. I always ask when someone says anything, just say, what does the Bible say about this issue? I don't care how many degrees they have. education is great we all we have the phds we're just saying go back to the bible and don't get uh don't get enchanted by these hip popular terms and theories <laughs> just always go back and say i have to test everything everything even neil and pat against what the bible says and i appreciate you saying that and pat i want to give you a chance to, to finish here but you know how um Secret Service, FBI. I'm not, I can't. I don't, forget the branch of the government that looks for counterfeit bills. But you know how they, you know how they train to spot counterfeit bills. They study actual ones. Yeah, looking at the actual ones. Yeah, and so yeah. anything that just looks off and looks wrong because you know what the real authentic thing looks like, you know it's counterfeit. And I, and uh, Neil, I really appreciate you saying that because I think for the average person, it's like, oh my gosh, I have to learn all this stuff. Uh, I mean, yes, it helps, no doubt about it. Uh, and and if you find yourself in a firefight, it's really good to to know all the equipment being used in this battle. But at the end of the day, if you know the truth, you'll be able to spot the counterfeit, and that's what a lot of what we're concerned about. And it's disguising itself in fancy theories and terms like justice, you know, uh, equity things that sound good, but you know, okay, something's off here because I know what scripture says, but, uh, Pat, give us your, your, your bottom line for the average person who's wanting to combat this in, in a way that is, uh, effective, but still a little unsure of themselves. I would say three things quickly. One, pray, be, be someone who is about praying about being effective in trying to be helpful 
in uh, combating these ideas. Pray to have a humble perspective. Pray for God to work in what you're doing relative to your efforts and in your church and so forth. Second, keep the Bible's admonitions around how we are to speak to each other in mind. We're to speak the truth in love. The man of God is not quarrelsome. All our words are to be full of grace, seasoned with salt. We're going to be held accountable for every careless word spoken, you know, Matthew 12, 36. We need to keep the Christ commands about our speech in mind. And then thirdly, before you launch into a critique, because you hear a certain buzzword that seems to be woke, ask who you're talking to, what they actually mean by that word. If your pastor uses the term (laughs) social justice, don't automatically uh, let that trigger you. In fact, there is biblical justice that dovetails with social causes. So don't get superstitious about terms and then ask who you're talking to. Well, what do you actually mean when you talk about when you're saying whites are fragile? What, What do you actually mean when you're talking when you say the word white supremacy is everywhere or or whatever context that the term is being used let people explain themselves because you might then you will at least be alerted to what they are truly thinking which will give you a better insight in terms of the pathway that you need to take the conversation so that would be my encouragement Uh, and you know that's actually great advice what's funny is i've heard people use these terms because they hear them in culture Hmm. Uh, and once they start to unpack them, you find out that you're like that, you know, that you, that word does not mean what I think you think it means, <laughs> you know, kind of, kind of thing. And, and then you can have a conversation that is constructive. Uh, and if, again, if you know the, the scripture, you can go, you go right to that. That's where you should always go back to. Uh, and, and then I th- you see conversations change and you see the lights tend to go on. All right. Anything you guys want to add before I let you go? I appreciate both of you being here. I know we've, I feel like we've just scratching the surface, but I think it's healthy for people to hear. Anything you want to add? I just, uh, say, I would just oh, go ahead. At, at, the, at the same time, sorry, I should have given you a cue. All right, Neil. <laughs> yeah, keep the gospel center. I think people look to these theories because they're looking to fight racism, they're looking to fight injustice, mm-hmm. and they're, they're, they're sensing it that there's good things. And I, we agree. But don't lose sight of the fact that the gospel is, is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The gospel is what unites us. The gospel is what gives us power to work for justice. Mm-hmm. So don't abandon the gospel to so go to look for justice because you're not going to find it. And you're going to lose both in the process. That's great. Uh, it's so good. Mm-hmm. Pat, you want to dovetail on that? Yeah, I would just say that our our book, Critical Dilemma, has seven chapters essentially that are covering critical social theory and critiquing it. But our book is also additional things that are adjacent to these concerns. We put forth a a plan for racial unity and racial uh, uh, harmony uh, among the body of Christ, a three-point plan of awareness, contemplation, and action. We also are strong promoters of dialogue. We also give an excursus on evangelical theology as a subset of Protestant theology as it pertains to our project. So we help with what you we've just talked about here in terms mm-hmm. of getting shorn up in terms of what the Bible says about these concerns. And and so our our book is is also uh, we, we talk about collective guilt, how to think about that rightly, biblically. That can be an inoculation and, and help you resist some of these ideas in terms of them impacting your thinking. If you're thinking rightly about how God thinks about sin and guilt. And so our book is offering a range of things around this topic and 
it can be a both and. Yeah. You can be rightly critiquing uh, anti-racism and critical social justice and critical social theory and also being working for biblical justice, pushing back against racism and sexism and being the vanguard of, of healing in our society and being salt and light. So that that's our hope in terms of what the book will produce Love it. for those Love who read it. Yeah, that's fabulous. And I appreciate both of you guys. You can follow both of these guys uh, at their individual websites, patsawyer.org. Uh, Neil is at shenvyapologetics.com. Uh, and then, of course, this site for the book. In fact, let me show you that one real quick. This is the the book site, criticaldilemma.com. Looks like that. So it's got the, oh, um, that's the cover of the book. That's the website. It's got the cover of the book as well. Follow up. Look, here, here, here's what you need to know, I think, at the end of the day. Your Bible. Know your scripture. You always go back to that. And if you want to get sort of that PhD, PhD in, in the stuff that's floating around our culture and creep it into our church, pick up Critical Dilemma. It's available wherever you get books. And uh, fight the fight. It's already been won. It's good. Appreciate you guys being here. Hit share, like, subscribe, follow, and we'll see you again next time here on Life Today Live. Thanks, Randy. Thanks, Randy. It's God's